Welcome to series four of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto, a B Corp certified company that loves food, data, people, technology, and the planet. We are currently delivering millions of meals every single week, and our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner. Our purpose is to have positive impact on people and the planet. And each week here on Bold Flavors, I'll be talking to top company founders, CEOs and business leaders about their journey so far, what makes them tick and how they achieve what they're achieving. Today, I'm talking to Iggy, the hugely inspiring founder of Serviced. His vision is for every single physical asset in the world to be in one database so that everyone understands the impact of climate change on their assets, what actions to take and what risk people actually have. Iggy has worked in investment banking and strategy consulting and has started three companies so far. In this episode, he and I will talk about his inspiring vision for the world to be a better place, how he found his true calling and the challenges of scaling a purpose-driven organization. Iggy, thank you so much for joining. I'm hugely excited to speak to you. Normally, I first go into my guests' childhood and story and talk about what makes them tick. But with you, I would really, really love to talk about what you are currently working on, the mission you are on, the vision, and then maybe we can go back to previous experiences. But um, can you describe in your own words what you're working on right now? Um, absolutely. First of all, thank you very much, Timo, for having me on your show. And uh, many, many congratulations on your recent news as well for your own growth. So at Savest, what we are working on, we are building something called climate intelligence. I think we've reached a point where we need to get a better understanding of what's happening to our physical assets around the world. Um, Climate change is real. It does exist. It will manifest in some very extreme events, um, rising temperatures. What does all this mean for everyday assets? So when we set up the business five and a half years ago, we said, well, can we build a better climate intelligent world where everyone can adapt to climate change and, that, and we can build a better future, uh, particularly for our children? So we applied a lot of physics, machine learning. We went into research, tried to answer questions that hadn't been answered yet. So people could get comfortable with the idea of understanding climate risk at, um, on their assets. As you know, um, Timo, when we last spoke, there's this sort of dual problem that we have in climate. One is around nature being, you know, it's this non-linear chaotic system. But also humans, um, there's this massive cognitive dissonance between people and climate, between science and belief. So you have to devise products that allows people to build trust in your products so that they can truly understand what's happening. We always say that there's this massive psychological gap between climate change and people. And we're trying to close that gap as much as possible by focusing on what matters to people, which are their assets. Whether you're a farmer, you're a bank, you're a real estate company, insurance company, you do care about your assets. And we're trying to close that gap by using uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, also fusing physics with kind of complex mathematics and um, statistics. It hasn't been an easy journey, Timo. It takes I, time. I can only imagine, and I'm <laughs> sure we, we'll go into it. But before, just give me like a really simple kind of example of, um, you know, take, for example, Gusto. We've, we've got a bunch of factories. What would the platform do for, for Gusto and the asset? 
Yeah, so you started with factories, but if you were planning factories or looking at your existing factories, we want and you want to understand over time what's going to happen to these factories under different climate scenarios, um, extreme events, weather events, or whether they're short-range events, mid-range events, or long-term events. So you and your shareholders have put up factories that could last, I don't know, 25, 30, 40 years. How will that geography change over time in terms of physical risk? Are you likely to see more wind, more rain, uh, more flooding, more heat stress days, more droughts, more wildfires? What does that do to the protection of your assets? But we also want you to understand around those factories, there's also other assets that you depend on. So what's the codependency that you have, let's say to the local transport hub, to the local port, to the um, local rail network? Because when you think about the distribution of climate change, it's never even, Timo. So you'll get different events happening at different, and different assets have different resiliences and different assets have different vulnerability. So how, if you pull all that complex picture together, you then want to understand um, as a company, have I put my assets in the right location? If I've already built my assets and I'm subject to see you know, fairly strange physical changes um, over time, can I build resilience in those assets? Do I need to fortify those assets? Do, do I need to deepen the foundations of these assets? Can I weatherize these assets? Do I need to think about my HVAC systems um, in a very different way? So in many ways, what we're trying to say is assets may get affected and we'll tell you how much effect we think you're going to have on your factories, but also we'll tell you what you need to do to improve the resilience of those assets because you will see change. Um, I don't know whether you know, uh, I think you're a physicist, right, by training? Economist. I think that's an overstatement. Um, I <laughs> I did some <laughs> physics, but a long time ago, and I did statistics. I taught statistics, but um, not in 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 at the level you have um, accomplished. Well, I mean, it's a very simple equation. We have a global energy equation. Right now, we put out too much energy. It's not bouncing back off the earth, and that energy gets gets transformed into extreme events, and will be with us for many decades to come. So. I always say to folks that, listen, you, we will experience more extreme events, irrespective of how fast we can decarbonize. We need to do both. Mm -hmm. But there's two sides to the risk equation. There's decarbonizing at scale, at speed. Mm -hmm. So we're not, we're not generating more excess heat um, and excess um, um, energy balance. But we also need to contend with the energy balance that we do have. Mm. Where does that go? If it goes into the oceans, it's going to heat up the oceans. That's going to hit the land. We're going to see more extreme coastal areas. Um, so all that will play out across a broad distribution of hundreds and hundreds of millions of different assets. Assets that we all care about. It's not just Augusto factories. It's, it's hospitals. It's ports. It's critical infrastructure. It's real estate buildings. It's down to Amazon warehouses. We saw what happened to the um, Amazon warehouse over Christmas, for instance, mm. in um, Illinois. So these events are getting played out, but they're getting played out with greater intensity, Timo, greater frequency, greater severity, and in more places in the world. You saw what happened in your own country last year in Germany mm. over the summer, right? So how do we start using the power of probability, AI, machine learning to say, what can we possibly know early so we can move our risk frameworks towards a proactive framework rather than always being reactive? How can wow. insurance companies think about this? How can governments, how can shareholders, how can, how can banks think about this? So we're trying to get everyone to understand and become more climate literate, start using climate intelligence in the same way that you and I use financial intelligence or cybersecurity intelligence. 
why not climate intelligence? We can now build this into your workflow. We can put it to your desktop. We can put it into your critical path, into your financing decisions, your supply chain decisions, M&A decisions, for instance, location planning decisions. If you have the tools, why on earth wouldn't we not use them given this is our biggest, biggest challenge that we face today? I find it so incredibly inspiring what you're building and the scale of the vision you have and the possible positive impact on, you know, you said it on the future, on our kids in the future. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing what you're building. And it's so kind of crazy that we don't have that today. And I guess... You know, today you're, you're a small company, but it's so obvious that what you're building needs to be the global standard and every single person is on it. Like just um, before we go into the nuts and bolts, I want to stay at vision, but like who, who is kind of the first adopter? Because clearly like everyone has to be on your platform. It's amazing. Well, I mean, I think the challenge with all new categories, um, and you've seen this in your, in your own work, Timo, is categories are very hard to build. I mean, there's no playbook, there's no prior, there's no prior platform that we can just copy and figure out whether we can make it faster, better, cheaper. Then you've got the climate problem. So we always start with vision, right? What are we trying to do? What are we trying to solve for? Because also to solve this, you need to bring a fairly strong and weird union of skills. I mean, we have people in our firm <laughs> from super PhDs to super quants, from product people to commercial people to just downright polymaths, right? Now, ordinarily in any company, you wouldn't bring these people together, but for this particular problem, you have to fuse all these skills together. So we've been through, I guess, waves. This is actually, I've been at this for six years, Timo. The first mm -hmm. wave was just research and asking very naive, dumb questions. Can we do this? Can we do this? Can we look at this data set? And then I, I was fortunate enough that I met um, um, Dr. Ben Calderhead um, early on in my journey. And Ben said, actually, we need to move everything to a mathematical framework, which is cohesive. So we can look at multiple perils, multiple hazards, multiple assets, multiple timelines. So he kind of set the framework for helping us think about this risk framework that we built, which is a very heart of our how we measure um, asset level risk. Then we started pulling through some interesting signal from all the noise that we made. We certainly made lots of noise. The first few models are pretty awful, Timo, to be honest. They weren't <laughs> pulling out anything. You know, this is back in 2017. Then slowly and slowly, we started making a bit more progress. We started life in looking at agricultural assets first. We said, can we forecast crops? Can we look at the change of state in nature around farmland? Because that was my background. So prior to that, I'd set up a farming business in West Africa. Then slowly, we started moving from a research phase into a product. Can we start now looking at how do we translate all this complexity in easy-to-use everyday products? So everyone from the shop floor all the way through to a banker can start using this and start in including climate intelligence um, into their decisions. But the culture changes. Every time you go through that phase, the culture of the firm changes. So from a research mm -hmm. culture to an early product development, now to a customer-centric, we have the first 50 large customers um, wow, on the platform as well. Yeah, but it all came crushing in sort of, you know, the last two quarters, we opened up, because often, Timo, we, we, we're trying to do something that's so novel, we're trying to show everybody what their health record is on their assets, right? Mm. So we're trying to say, well, how do we do this in a way without revealing everything on day one? So we said, let's just go and invite 20, 30 companies onto the platform first and tell them 
what could the world look like if everyone else could see Timo's asset and Timo could see their assets? I'm a fundamental believer in open intelligence. Mm-hmm. So climate's a problem where we can't, we can't game theorize for the next 15 years, right? We need to give everyone a base level of intelligence. So we, we, everyone's got a common level of what's going to happen to Timo's assets and Timo can see my assets. So let's have a grown-up conversation because we don't have much time left <laughs> to sort of solve this. So the, these first 25 companies went up to 40, and I think we just hit 50 companies. Um, and, and they've been surprised. They've been surprised. The assets they thought that were safe were quite risky, and the ones that were risky were not as risky as they thought. But if you can go back to 1970 and look at their assets and go all the way through to 2100 under different climate scenarios across a whole host of different hazards. So we don't just look at flood risk and fire risk. We pull together a collection of assets and we mathematically tie those together. And it's been interesting because some of them have said, hey, can I look at my suppliers, my supplier network? Of course you can. Yeah, here you go. This is how you build a portfolio. Can I look at a target M&A? Actually, I'm thinking about buying this real estate in this country. It's really interesting with now we've just got to the banks and banks are now looking at this and said, well, how do I start incorporating this into my finance? Because Mm -hmm. if I can finance better, then Timo will behave more because he knows he needs to modify his factory in the next Mm -hmm. 15 years. So he has some time to fix it. But also then my credit becomes more risky over time. So can I send Timo that conversation? Can I be the conversation partner as a bank? Say, Timo, looks like you need to take adaptation on these 20% of your assets can you do that in the next 10 years? Because it looks like these risks could be 15, 20 years out. But some risks may be three or four years out. So you've got to think about that distribution of time as well. Right? And what's the probability? And if you're a bank, imagine the power of, of a bank. If they can segment everyone's assets and rate them in such a way, they can start rewiring financial decisions um, also. So, and, and that's that's fairly critical because I can't think of another sector that, that has the distribution power that banks have. So that's what we're trying to do. It's, it's fun. <laughs> um, before we go further into the journey and the operationalization of your vision, I, I would love to kind of understand where your huge passion for the vision is coming from. Just very briefly, like talk us through where did you grow up? How was it like? Very, very briefly. Life started in the Midlands. I typical immigrant story. Parents were from India. It's always the hard work, the discipline, the outside the complex that you have. Right? <laughs> so you tend to focus a little bit more on education than you probably should. Then I certainly tell my children now: balance between fun and work. You don't need to over-index on um, um, education. So early on, I sort of managed to get a decent education. I went into investment banking, Timo. Actually, I was doing a PhD and there were no other jobs left at the career department. That's the truth of it. (laughs) What did you do your PhD in? So I started looking at uh, political economy. I was looking at um, economic systems and sort of democratic systems and saying, how do we close a gap between the citizen and um, international organization? This is back in 93. And then I fell out with my supervisor, which is probably a good thing in sort of retrospect. And uh, they sent me to the careers department. And I, this was a Cambridge and they had a careers department, which basically had a very strict timeline. That means there was nothing left for me. So <laughs> they sent me to this quirky little bank. That they said, oh, it's an, they do m and I'm like, what's m and So I quickly read up in the um, library. But two weeks later, I'm working 80, 90 hours a week. So, <laughs> trying to do spreadsheets. I've never touched a spreadsheet before. So it, was a, it was a rude awakening to uh, the world of investment banking. 
it was good. It was a good core set of skills to learn. Then I moved over to strategy consulting. I've always had a thing for um, strategy, and I've actually wrote my master's thesis criticizing some of the economics, the sort of use of economic foundations in this, things like modern strategy. So mm-hmm. ended up working there. Then I actually had a bit of a software bug. I, I set up my first software company in 99, looking at patterns between data objects and using certain branches of mathematics to look for random patterns in large data sets. Um, no one understood it in Europe. I had to go to Silicon Valley to go and get funding. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that was in 1999 at the hype of the boom. Like how, how did it feel back then? Well, it felt we were focusing on a big problem, but um, people were focusing on selling nappies online and uh, <laughs> yeah, cars and credit cards and it was like oh nobody quite understood so we had to go to states and luckily i had some friends who had just sold that company they they had just become vc so on i love entrepreneurs who become vcs so they backed it in fact this is the only time in my life where vcs lifted the lid of my software fixed it found all the bugs and made it better <laughs> that's amazing it was a different world. Um, we did that for two or three years and we got, and then the telecoms crash came and then my investors said, listen, we're about to set up our new company. Why don't you just merge whatever's left of your IP into our company? So I did that for four years. I ran a US, US software company um, in Europe, um, ended up basically applying my um, M&A biz, business development skills. So we acquired something like 30 companies. Wow. I went back to strategy consulting and then one day we did a piece of work for a pretty famous um software billionaire and he said go and find me business models that for people who live on two or three bucks a a day so what they call the base of the pyramid problem Mm -hmm. right how do you create business models around low-cost sanitation healthcare agriculture i was quite intrigued by that work and i said actually this is interesting for me because i've always wondered whether companies have a moral purpose can i extract that research from agricultural research and apply it to west africa so I got together with my current COO, actually Karen Chopra and another friend of mine. We set up a business in West Africa looking at, can we bring sustainable farming to West Africa? And we focused on Ghana. Mm-hmm. And we, <laughs> I had no experience in farming whatsoever. In fact, my father said, we got out of farming to put you into education. And, you're, <laughs> and, you're, <laughs> and you're voluntarily going back into farming. This makes no sense whatsoever. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, can even, I can picture the discussion, yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't a comfortable one, but, you know, I think my father only really realized that this, the work I was doing was valuable when I spoke at, at the UN. For him, that was more, you know, that was a, the pride that the sort of father had. And then he passed away soon, soon, soon after that. So sort of continued with that journey, sold that business in 2015. It was a, it was a complex business. It was growing farming in West Africa, looking at import substitution is a, it was a challenge, uh, but it taught me something very valuable about climate. And that's, that's what gave me the genesis team for this business. We kept seeing these shock patterns, these events happening. We saw a month's worth of rainfall fall in three hours. I'm like, what is going on here, right? We looked at the weather systems, climate models, couldn't make heads or tails of them, right? I'm mm-hmm. like, this is ridiculous. None of them have any forecasting capability at an asset level, at a farm level. We also got Deutsche to fund a $6 million mill and within, even before construction had finished, half of it was on the floor because they had a 50 year wind, apparently. Mm. <laughs> How would you start forecasting some of this in a way that can protect your assets? And so when I sold that business, I decided to set up Sylvest. I said, there has to be a better way, right? Because there's no, and we were a well-capitalized farm, Timo. Imagine 
hundreds of millions of other farmers not having access to any of this capital, any mm. of this intelligence. So I went to the design board, as I always do when I'm thinking about big, big problems. And I said, okay, how do we make the most amount of impact with a platform, with a business model that can be freemium? So multiple, multiple, multiple people can actually benefit from this. And first couple of years research, then in 2017, 18, started getting a little bit of traction with some early customers on testing. I, had, I was fortunate I had a good partnership with Syngenta. Um, so they gave me lots of interesting training mm -hmm. data. So that allowed us to train some of the um, early models. But something was bugging me, you know, inside. I'm like, but food and agriculture is interesting, but actually this is a much, much larger problem. I turned around to Ben Calderhead. I said, Ben, can we take this global? He said, what do you mean? So can we look at every single object on the planet, every physical <laughs> asset? He said, okay, calm down. Uh, I'll come back in. Yeah. He said, I'll come back in a week. And within a week he came back. I said, I think this is doable. We can transfer lots of our machine learning into multiple objects, built environment objects, as well as natural capital objects, and as well as what we call linear infrastructure, like pipelines, mm. raid, road, rail networks, for instance. So we went back to the investors and said, you know what we told you, we're just going to slightly refine. I think my, my, one of my investors, George, um, from, from Arsenal Ventures, he said, Iggy, you just did a silent pivot overnight. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, it's still climate. It's still a big problem. We're just expanding the asset base, George. <laughs> so George is, a, George is one, of the, one of the best investors you can have because he fundamentally buys into the mission and the vision. And then he gets out the way. He gives every now and then he gives strategic guidance and he's a great conversation partner. And, and just, just to focus slightly on the serendipity point, I just want to briefly kind of ask a question on, you know, you talked about you met a billionaire. He gives you this challenge, the base of the pyramid problem. You know, can you, can you fix farming in a sustainable way for people under $2 a day? Like how pivotal was that moment? Because until then you did a PhD, you were in Cambridge, you know, work hard, amazing work ethics. You kind of focused on software, data, investment, banking, strategy, consulting, but none, none kind of related to sustainability. And then one day you meet this person and your eyes are being open, you're focusing on, I guess, you know, very kind of purpose-driven things. Like how pivotal was that? To be honest, I think there was an undercurrent in me from my, from my early days. So my, my undergraduate thesis was on, does a corporation have a moral purpose? Mm. I've always been bothered by inequality. So my parents, with the way they worked in factories, I'm like, something was eating me inside for a very, mm. very long time. And I said, can, can we do something better, right? You spend all your entire adult life, 60, 70, 80% of it in enterprises. And from, for my parents, they were factories. So I was always burning to say, can we, can we do something better, right? So you could see the tree. And this was in the 70s, you know, mm -hmm. so, you know, factories in the 70s weren't such pleasant places, right? So I've always asked myself, is that a better way? Is that a different form of capitalism that we can pursue? Wow. So I've always been interested with this. I think they used to call it frontier markets or frontier investments. I was very fortunate also. I met Jacqueline Novogratz fairly early on. She's a founder of um, Acumen Fund. Mm -hmm. And she got it. She said, listen, I can sense the burning to do something. Can I help you with this, with this project in Africa? And then they became an early, early investor. I brought on mission-aligned investors. I think the key for me is if you're going to do something mission-aligned, find the right investors who care about the same problem. Yeah. Right. 
because I had the misfortune of bringing some investors early on to the last project. I had to buy them out because, mm -hmm. again, they they don't understand the longer term vision and they just want to get to metrics quickly. So I've actually had the same issue here. I With Sylvester, I've been very intentional, very purposeful about what investors do I want. Right? So, so as a third time entrepreneur, your pattern recognition just gets a little bit better. So um, in terms of investors, if they're not mission aligned, please do not join the cap table. <laughs> for, for sure. Can't, can't highlight that point enough. You can only mess it up once. It's so painful. Yeah, no, I, I and I think not just me, I think many other first-time entrepreneurs, second-time entrepreneurs, that misalignment at the board is, is, is critical, right? And particularly when you're building categories, though, Timo, when you're building something that hasn't been built before, There's no prior. Investors can't look back and say, oh, I've seen 50 others like this. Fine, your model's slightly better. They're buying into vision, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and George and Astonor and Future Positive Capital, Lower Carbon Cap, all these investors came together and said, yes, we like this vision. It's a vision we haven't seen before. We know it's risky. You may not get there. But if you get there, we can see the impact this could actually make on people's lives, decisions, better decisions. Oh, and by the way, along the way, we'll make money too. <laughs> It's, I, I mean, win, win, win. But, but like, let me focus on this, this other pivotal point you just made around, you know, you're focusing on agriculture, you're focusing on food, and then one day you're shifting to, you know, can we put everything in the world into this platform, given you are so data driven, and you're so cerebral and analytical. But at the same time, you've got this like amazing ability to think big, you know, have a dream. Like where where's that coming from? That strategic big picture thinking. Um, I think it's in your career. You see, you see lots of limitations. I mean, I'm a foolish entrepreneur, sort of many ways. I want to do something big, and I never got investors who tell me go big or just go home. So don't make small impact. In fact, that I, I can't mention their fund, but I had an impact fund a couple of years ago who looked at Sylvester and said. The vision is too big, your impact too big, just focus on impact in Europe. I'm like, mm. climate is not that kind of problem. <laughs> it's, a, it's a deeply interconnected problem. If we don't solve it in China or Brazil or India or Germany or UK, yeah, we're all fucked basically. So think about it in a slightly different way. So the more you understand about physics and climate, the more you need to strive towards global solutions and a global platform. Yeah. You cannot think about optimizing climate for the energy sector only or for the manufacturing sector. It doesn't work that way. The physics just doesn't allow you to do that. So I'm like, okay, if we want maximum impact. And the pivot from ag to built environment, that was data-driven. I said, okay, we are not going to solve climate by just focus on food and ag. Can we take this in a way that can go into assets that people will finance today? Right? Because mm. it's hard, it's notoriously difficult to, to monetize food and ag. Mm. And also, if we can show how climate intelligence works in built environments for insurance companies, banks, asset managers, shareholders, then we can transfer it back into food and agriculture to say, why don't we take a whole asset approach over time? This is why we break the world up in built environment, natural and linear assets. Mm -hmm. and that should cover a good 85 to 90% of the world's assets on which we think about our economic, our financial, our human security, our social security, all that will come from the assets that we built, the assets that we depend upon as well. But I don't think I could ever go to investors and say, oh, you know, I want to build a natural capital tool only. It's not going to be big enough for them. So you've got to mix this combination of 
you know, economic returns, business problem, and solving the problem as well. It's always that constant fusion that you're looking at. I mean, you've probably seen it in your business too. You're always juxtapositioning between impact and making money and delivering a great product as well. Always. I mean, it's it's a hugely difficult challenge, especially in the early years. But I want to stay on this network effects point. Like if you had a crystal ball, how do you get to the inflection point? Because it's so easy to see that one day you've got like 80, 90 percent of assets in the world on your platform. And I mean, you are really silly not to be on it. Why wouldn't you? But like, how do you get to that inflection point? And obviously, that's that's a trillion dollar question. But I, I'd love to just get your kind of operational vision or strategy for, for getting there. Yeah, so right now, I think we have we put on about I think it's a 230, 240 million searchable, queryable assets, 500 by the end of this year. I'm super excited. Later this year, we're rolling out our first natural capital assets as well. So we, when we look at our assets, I'm not looking at, you know, Gusto factories only. I'm looking at the surrounding ecosystem. What services does nature offer that factory? So when you're thinking about strength in the factory, can oh, you wow. use nature-based like, solutions? Well, like the uh, river, Yosemite... Because that's why your factory is there. It's it is it is giving you services today. Whether they're everything, which is farming, it's sort of um, pollination services, it's it's water regulation services. Think about all the services we get from nature. Think why we've built the cities where we built them today. Right? These are so it's all mm -hmm. to do with harmonization of nature. Except we've gone too far. So I'm trying to figure out when you're looking at those assets, are you looking at them in the context of related risks, or mm -hmm. can you reduce the risk by reforestry for instance can you think about water defenses for instance so can you think about greening different areas so they can provide the services to the very assets that we need to sort of continue surviving frankly and, and just can you share like any really kind of curious finding or interesting one like a non-linear one where you added this and this type of asset to the database and then all of a sudden the, the risk profile changed way beyond your expectation like what are the the surprising things well, I think the surprising thing is just the dissonance that people have between their understanding of risk. Because again, we never have to look at climate change. If you, I mean, there's a very huge company that's um, on the platform now. They were looking at their assets one day and they discovered a very, very risky asset um, on the platform. Again, when, when they acquired the asset, zero risk, they didn't even think about climate, water, security, heat. What they realized is within five or 10 years from now, the heat stress on that factory will fundamentally change. That's now prompted them to make deep investments in their HVAC systems, their aircon systems, because obviously they're going to wow. fall foul of um, health and safety regulations. Hmm. But now they've gone back in and they're now inspecting hundreds of other assets. This is a truly global company, so they need a global view of, of all their assets and say, what intervention can we make now so we don't face shock to the factory over time? Because Business and supply chain disruption is increasing all the time. And a lot of that will come down to climatic events, extreme events, shock events to the system, right? How can we, again, take the world to a proactive rather than a reactive um, risk, risk management framework? Wow, yeah, really fascinating. Makes sense. And, and just linking this back to you as a person, you know, you're coming from a very um, giving advice to companies on M&A strategy. Like, how have you found the leadership journey? The company you're running, serviced, like, is such a kaleidoscope of PhDs and colorful people and product people. Like, how, how have you found the leadership journey? What have you learned about yourself? I think I knew early on um, 
I can't solve this by myself. So the first thing I did, I sort of told my lawyer at the time, just put 25% of the company to the team, right? I'm, I'm not going to solve this by myself. Let's just put a huge option pool together for a team because you have to attract this diversity of skill and talent. Mm. I said, let's put a big chunk of the company to one side. It's been a challenge, Timo, because what you've known as leadership in different companies is quite different when you're building this type of company. So I always now jokingly say, I want to be the dumbest person in the company. And mm-hmm. I, I, I genuinely mean that. I'm not smart enough to solve this problem. Or also, I want to focus on what I focus on best, building the vision, building the category. I have hired some fantastic people who are just cracking on. I was super excited last year. I brought on my chairperson and she's she's just phenomenal. She's fantastic. And I brought on my old co-founder from my farming business, Karen Chopra, as my COO. That mentally frees up a lot of my time to focus Mm. on the strategic things. How do I get this vision into the market? Um, but hiring people, it's it's difficult because when you're going through these various phases from research to product to customer centric, the skill sets do change. You have to carry people with you. You have to explain why we're going from research to product. Why do metrics matter? Why does commercialization matter um, over time? So you're constantly trying to focus on, we're all here for the mission, but we also need to be practical. We need to think about a diverse set of skills. We're up to almost 40% women um, across the firm. And in engineering, tech, and ML, that's that's bloody hard, but we, we're getting there. I think working remotely has widened the, the sort of um, talent pool for us. And that's mm-hmm. been very, very, very interesting for us. But leadership is... It's complex. You have to start building trust in your people. And the first couple of years, I, it was very difficult because they were all scientists. So it's like, okay, I need more commercial people. I need product people. And there's no rule book for building a new category. I think that's what makes it hard. And, and I've told people in my firm that I've hired who have come in with 20 years experience plus, well, I've done this many times before. Well, you haven't because this hasn't been built before. So, you know, we've just moved to a product matrix or matrix build company agile teams inside the firm and it's interesting when you bring bring people together who've got 20 years of experience or 25 with someone who just fresh out of college they can work together every day so i'm a pretty non-hierarchical person as you can tell timo so you I seem very approachable and fun yeah well i'm not sure about fun but <laughs> no i mean like I, look i love people who have intensity who have conviction who have you know the desire to intellectually shed light on stuff and so i think that's that's my interpretation of fun it's maybe less mainstream <laughs> but i mean it's i mean it's just such a fascinating problem to work on i can see how people join the company being so mission driven and and you know leaving the facebooks the googles of this world being you know, no longer interested in these types of missions. But then at some point, I guess you will have to make money. And so what are you telling the team? What are you telling investors? How long can you be pre, pre-revenue pre or loss-making for? I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think it's not just mission. You have to marry mission with method, right? Mm. So in fact, when Karen joined me again last year, he said, you know, Iggy, I think this fusion between mission and method. And we spent a long time discussing this to say, okay, how do we get the right balance, right? Because we, we're deep, deep, deep on mission and I want to maintain that as a dominant culture. How do we develop methodology in terms of understanding what do customers want? How do we start commercializing this? How do we take this to market? How do we move from this 
initial culture of research into product, into customer-centric, user-centric? How do we do that? Because if you don't have method, the very mission you're trying to solve for, you're not going to take it to market. You're not going to commercialize it. You're not going to scale it. So your impact you're looking for, you're not going to make it, Timo. Mm-hmm. Right? So I said, actually, we only make impact when everyone's using our climate intelligence tools, our intelligence into their workflows, our APIs. So I said, I'm constantly saying, guys, can't just over-focus on mission. You have to have method to take in take this to market. And that goes with the investors as well. So when we're now talking to um, investors for um, future rounds of financing, we're talking to the board. The board have been remarkably patient. Uh, this is my fifth year, and we're only now beginning to build, right? So mm-hmm. that's a journey. So you really do need to have a strong vision that someone can fund, fund the research, fund the build, fund the development, and they're really trying to take out as much uncertainty as possible whilst you take these products to market. We were all surprised that how fast these companies came up in the last two quarters, right? Mm-hmm. 50 companies in two quarters, big companies, trillion dollars worth of market cap between oh. them. Oh. But what that means is that people are crying out for climate solutions. They do want to know these risk factors, right? So the question for us now is, okay, how do we accelerate that, right? Um, I would tell large companies, if we can stay within a Paris-aligned world, which we're not trending towards now, by the way, Tim. No, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid. In the next 10 years, it's the best chance we have for collective security. I'm, more, I'm more, much more positive on the longer term. I'm negative on the short term. 10 years, I'm more positive, but I, I see your point, yeah. I, it's, I mean, you're a, you're a financial whiz as well. Like Linear curves don't apply here. Right. You you may change, the climate may change in ways that we don't know. There may be a regime change that could change. We need to then go back to all. A lot of the assumptions that we've had over the last 10 years, we've actually exceeded some of those assumptions, risky ones as well. Right. So we do need to push at a massive scale. And, and the problem with governments is technology can travel faster than governments. Technology mm. can, can travel faster than regulators, which is precisely why I don't wait for companies to tell me where their assets are. I've taken all the world's assets and put them onto a single platform so we can look at them and we can make them open. Mm. I mean, Timo may choose to show his shareholders and the world what his assets look like. But if you were a public company, we would just put those onto the platform and say, everyone can look at Timo's assets and you can have a conversation around the risk (laughs) rather than, and you have to remember Timo, Even the largest billion-dollar companies, they do not have climate departments. They have not collected any system of records over the last 30, 40 years on climate. They're Mm -hmm. starting from zero. They literally are starting from zero. Yeah, I mean, it's hugely fascinating. Just going back to one one point you said, so talking about moving from research to product to customer. I mean, eventually, the the next stage must be sales, I I would assume. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love the intentionality you have. I guess these phases overlap and therefore signposting this, the phases once you're in them is really hard. When I today walk into Google or I meet senior people at Google, they are all ex-Sky or you know very commercial companies. It's, it's mainly a sales organization today, no longer mm-hmm. a research or product or customer focused one, I would argue. And so I, I guess I'm still keen to understand to what extent is it okay for culture to be fluid and to be adjusted over time? And, and what is like firmly drawn in the sand and you're not willing to cross that line? How, how are you feeling about that, that cultural ev- evolution and where are the boundaries to play? 
go back to the mission go back to why do we do what it is we do because we want to make impact if we continue research we continue product prototyping and not putting the product into the market and testing and iterating and iterate we've had so much feedback from these first 50 large customers imagine the next 50 so mm. this is an iterative process right now we've we've issued lots of product updates to our initial customers we now go into that commercialization phase and pricing discovery has been hard uh, mm. because people don't know whether should i pay a dollar or should i pay a hundred thousand dollars climate is odd because they, they haven't paid for these types of tools before right mm. so no but we've we've hired well we've hired more commercial people i've just brought on some fantastic senior people to help drive the sales strategy the arr strategy the go-to-market strategy and we're opening up in the states we've just set up the office there not too long ago our coo is based there our head of strategic projects is based there we will be looking for more commercially orientated folks but also mission aligned folks mm -hmm. right and i think you mm -hmm. said it best that there's a lot of people who have worked in large tech companies who are looking for purpose but they bring lots of technical skills mm -hmm. around product around marketing around pricing right mm -hmm. i mean we've we've hired incredibly well from places like microsoft and google improbable normative some great companies that we've hired from, they've all brought commercial skill with them, but they've all come because of the mission. And that's a hard one, right? Because typically I've seen a lot of impact oriented companies as they grow, they, they dilute along the way. But the very work we do is impact driven. Our product and our platform and our intelligence is the impact that we're making. For the first yeah, and time, obviously, you look at your risks. And I think, I mean, very similar to Gusto, you know, every single time you eat Gusto, seven kilos of CO2 emissions are taken out of the system compared to the equivalent supermarket shop. And so ultimately, right. how to square up kind of commerciality and, and impact is to say scale is driving the impact. And to have Absolutely. the scale, you have to be sustainable. And I think that's that's exactly the same for you. But it is culturally fascinating to see the changes in the company. And just focusing on you again a bit more, it's so clear how passionate you are. I mean, I literally sit here being so excited, smiling the entire time. But what takes your energy? What's the stuff you want to delegate? You know, how, how are you playing to your own strengths to keep that energy level high? That's a great point. And I actually had a coach last year to help me think about that delegation, mm -hmm. right? Think about, okay, what is your core superpower, Iggy? And what are you actually average at? And what are you frankly not good at? <laughs> right? Because, <laughs> because I mean, for us, over every strength, you have a corresponding weakness. So you can't be good in all lanes. It's not possible. So last year, we started moving towards an org structure to put the best swimmers in the best swim lanes. Mm -hmm. um, and that's and that's interesting, and particularly in a matrix type of organization, in an agile environment, how do you do that? And and that's a journey, Timo. I don't think that's solved. It's a journey. I think we're going through quite a few senior changes, but actually, I, I think there's a lot of, there's not much resistance to change, which is nice, because I think people do realize, okay, listen, we've got great product, great research. No one's doing this. We haven't seen this in the market. Market's responding really well. I think it was really rewarding when we had our end of year review, just looking at the customer comments. Like, I didn't realize this. I didn't realize this. This is a great way of looking at risk. Mm -hmm. It's really rewarding for everybody from the scientists to the data engineers to the product folks to the fantastic designers that we have. So they, it's really, really rewarding when that product and that impact is now going into making better decisions. And that's the goal. That's the win for us, right? 
management, we will be looking for more folks in the next two or three months. But it's also challenging, Timo, when you've got a remote working culture. What is the concept of leadership? What does that mean to lead remotely through Zoom and through ceremonies? How do you redefine that? How do you create new ones, for instance? We're going to be in a new era here, right? Mm-hmm. So we go into those challenges. We fact, I had an interesting meeting with my team yesterday about, like, how do we create new ceremonies? What does the behavior on remote working look like so that everyone can feel included? No one mm-hmm. feels excluded. All, all the, It's not just us, obviously. Your company, every company is going to the same what does a remote world look like? It's not just because of COVID. I think this is a permanent shift we're going to see. I think the nature of work will change, um, whether it's COVID or it's the next event. Right? Yeah, and I, I mean, to be honest, I think it makes everything so much more inclusive and it creates so much more opportunity to participate. Obviously, lots of challenges um, to take yeah. care of, but overall, it's a fantastic trend, sadly driven by, by sad events, but, but still very positive for people overall. And then just jumping into fundraising, I just read this headline that said, oh, climate tech is attracting record levels of funding. And I zoomed into the chart and I looked at like what they classified as climate investment. And it was literally stuff that was never, ever considered climate is now being relabeled. And therefore, the headline is it's a record level. But it's just nonsense, to be honest. And I'm just curious, is the world ready for climate tech? Do people understand it? Do they get it? Like, how are you finding it? Um, I think nonsense is probably the best term there, Timo. I think there's a lot of reclassification. I see ag tech in there. I see, I see like yes. mobility tech, city tech. It's all fused together into climate tech. It doesn't matter to a large extent. I mean, what matters is there's a raft of fantastic entrepreneurs for the first time embracing climate. I remember 10 years ago talking about climate. People used to fold their arms and look that and look the other way or look at their shoes. <laughs> so, so the fact that we have brilliant young entrepreneurs using technology, looking at new methodologies, I would say that, that there's been a bit of a carbon bubble over the last couple of years. And that's, and that's a good thing. Raising that awareness, taking out carbon, measuring carbon. Fantastic. Uh, yeah massive am- amounts of them so it'd be in- interesting to see how that market plays out it feels like day one in the carbon or decarbonization uh, market i mean it's, it's so it's so early days it is early days and think about the magnitude of what needs to get measured what needs to get taken out yes. what needs to get abated right then there's a very fringe end of that climate tech where people are working on very pioneering approaches to take out carbon from the system carbon removal right that's that's the extreme end. That's very, very hard. That's very speculative at the moment. And we need breakthroughs across the entire climate carbon chain of the next couple and, of years. And I think we need to break the cycle of lying around offsetting. And, you know, every company claiming then like net neutral or, or neutral or whatever. Like, And then you look at the, the offsetting. Everyone is claiming the same tree in Brazil. And then that tree is kind of, you know, gone next year. And it's just nonsense. And so... I, it's it's still the wild west if you look into uh, into decarbonization sadly but it's amazing as you said to see so much talent focusing on it yeah i mean we'd be i've been writing a, a little bit about the decarbonization and the carbon credits market um it's complicated it's almost it's a necessary tool until we get mm. to the um, zero world but i think there's a lot of abuses there's a lot of misuse there's a lot of greenwashing going on um as you know <laughs> mm-hmm. i think we spoke about that last time as well um 
but hopefully the tools and the transparency of the tools will diminish some of the scope for companies for greenwashing double accounting for instance right? mm. like the, the same country claiming that carbon credit that you know a famous tech company has also claimed over the same tree over the same forestry that's a big problem mm. right? how do we account for that and also i mean <laughs> i think we wrote something about microsoft not too long ago where they're taking out carbon credits and half the forest had burned down because they're not mm. measuring physical risk on those forests. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Great point, great point. You can't just offset your way into a climate economy. No, you can't, no. You have to be, this is why we say, ultimately, you have to get back to adapting your assets as well. Mm-hmm. You have to decarbonize those assets and you have to make them resilient. And you have to have sensible assets in sensible geographies relative to what's going to happen to those geographies over time. Com- completely. And let me just link it to, to actual people away from assets. And obviously, they, they are, they are, these are interlinked. But imagine the year 2030, imagine two people, one of them is a vegan renting a tiny flat, driving a bike, you know, studying. The other person is a rich person uh, eating steak six days a week and flying a private jet or, or even first class or business class, you know, twice a week. Obviously, these people are causing like probably a, a thousand X delta in CO2 emissions. How do we price these externalities? How by 2030 will real people feel kind of the impact on their actions more versus nothing today? Well, if that person is flying business class twice a week, the jet fuel may have changed by then. It's, there's, there's also an innovation curve. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely right? true. Fair point. Fair point. But, no, because But you I get the underlying are, point. Yeah, it's going to be hard if we live in a society where it's us and them, Timo. I'm I'm hopeful that the innovation curve can accelerate really, really fast. And this is why the promise of climate tech, the promise of you know, large institutional change and also intergenerational change as well. We have many more young people concerned about what they eat, where they buy, how they invest, where they pay, what their pension fund does. So there is a sea change happening. That If that sea change is linked with an innovation curve that can reduce the cost of new technologies can be a lot more radically transparent behaviors will change because guess what that business person may be a famous doctor flying to do great operations so so i love your optimism i totally agree we are entering the biggest deflationary super cycle driven by technology and that will impact co2 emission but i think it's not about them and us i think it's about how do you price externalities owning kind of the That's cost right. of your own actions. And that to me is a really fascinating one. And it feels like we're morphing into a world where regulation will increasingly focus on it. I think you're right. I think the, I think the markets hasn't priced for 150 years. And that's the fundamental challenge with that externality mm-hmm. has gone out and that needs to come back in. Now, can that come, come in in the next 10, 15 years? We hope so because we can't, we don't have 150 years as you know to <laughs> get get back to a ppm level that actually makes sense so uh, yep a combination of behavioral change pressure taxes some progressive taxes would be useful sending the right price on carbon would be very useful for for a start right i don't know what the governments are waiting for but you but the the challenge of course is you have then the climate justice problem you have half the world not contributing to this ppm level and the other half saying well fine uh, okay we solved it but we've got the technology potentially to get out of it, right? Mm. Listen, the whole world needs a level playing field over time, right? Carbon accounting around the globe, around that small blue atmosphere we have, 
that's the ultimate carbon accounting that we need to think about. Mm-hmm. And so we need to think about subsidies, taxes, um, transfer pricing that makes sense around the world to transfer these technologies. No point developing great technologies just for where you live in West West London. It mm-hmm. doesn't work. We have to reduce the cost of these tech and get them transferred to the rest of the world, which countries do have to meet their commitments to poorer nations. Mm-hmm. And when I was a cop recently, it was staggering. I'm standing in the in the blue zone somewhere, looking at all these countries, thinking to myself, "How on earth are all these guys going to make decisions? And how are they all going to harmonize those decisions over time?" Mm-hmm. It, it's mind blowing when you stand in the middle of the hall and you're looking at all these countries, and like, "Jesus, okay, how is this going to happen?" <laughs> Well, you you are you are playing such a crucial role in it. So I'm I'm optimistic and inspired. We could talk for hours. I just want to link this back to my two final questions. What what keeps you up at night? Um, usually conference calls with California. No, but other than that, um, <laughs> <laughs> what keeps me up at night? I, I, when people ask me, what do you do for work? I said, I don't know what that is anymore. I just follow my passion. My passion mm. is to focus on building this climate intelligence system. So I'm now you know, old, Timo, older than you, I'm going to say. I can focus my energies on this. I've had my career. I've had a banking. I've had a wonderful career. I've got a wonderful family. Let me focus on what I care about most now. I can mm-hmm. put all my energies. Whilst I've still got years in me left, let me put my energy into that passion. So that's what really keeps me up at night. My wife said I should definitely try and sleep more, but uh, <laughs> always always thinking about some aspect of the, of the business. I do. I mean, I've got, finally got back to reading, Timo. I I had abandoned my reading and under my desk, I had mountains and mountains of books and papers, probably not the most sustainable thing, but I tend to scribble on notes and books. That's, 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 that's how I learn. I'm afraid. So any, any book recommendation? Well, I'm just reading Al Weiwei's Thousand Years of Joy and Sorrows. So it's an autobiography. But actually, a book I would recommend is um, Amitath Ghosh's The Nutmeg's Curse. It's just come out. It's on the history of globalization and climate. It's actually a fantastic mm-hmm. book to read. Um, if anyone can get hold of um, Amitath Ghosh, The Nutmeg's Curse. Amazing. And anything else you do to unwind? So you mentioned you had a coach, like, you know, is there meditation, is there exercise? Like, well, what do you do to kind of get your, reset your mind, I guess? Yoga, walking, I have a wonderful dog. One of my daughters just gone to universities. The other one is still at home. So we spend time with her and um, family orientated. Timo, I don't do extreme sports or ride fancy cars. I, I'm a local guy. I live in Hampstead. I walk up and down the heath, think. You can normally find me in the Waterstones Cafe Saturday afternoon writing notes or thinking about something. (laughs) Amazing. Iggy, thank you so much for your time. I'm hugely inspired by what you're building and I wish you all the very best. I want nothing more for you to succeed at global scale as quickly as possible. So no pressure, but what you're doing is really, really amazing. Likewise, Timo, I'm thankful for the work that you do as well. And again, many congrats on your recent win and long may you continue. I think it was quite inspiring meeting you at that garden party, not the garden party, another garden party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should uh, right. thank, thank Boris um, for, for introducing us indirectly, yes. I think we spent most of the night um, talking, um, but it was fascinating. <laughs> <laughs>